So we actually want to go on to your case, Dr. Garrido. So this is a 70-year-old patient who had a laryngeal cancer many years before treated up north with chemotherapy and radiation. Chemotherapy included cisplatin. And she had a successful recovery for that, except because of that and because of the diabetes, she had a residual neuropathy. And she presented with a microcytic anemia, had a GI workup that revealed an ascending colon, colonic mass. Biopsy was compatible with an adenocarcinoma of the colon. I saw her post-op. She had a PET-CT pre-op that showed no evidence of distant metastasis and no evidence of lymphadenopathy. She had a right hemicolectomy, found to have a 3-centimeter tumor, which was well to moderately differentiated, had three positive lymph nodes. Out of how uh, many? She had a total of 15 lymph nodes, and three were positive. What about the neuropathy? Exactly what kinds of signs and symptoms did she have? She had persistent numbness and tingling, especially in the feet. We'll use a special kind of shoes because of multiple symptoms associated to it. Any motor problems? She was was not driving anymore because she didn't feel like she could drive carefully because of the feeling. Sensory. Sensory. Nothing motor? Not motor, no. Had this been stable? Has been stable for a few years at least. So she basically had it since she had the platinum and it... And she also had diabetes too, so difficult to tell what contributed to the neuropathy, probably both. What was her lifestyle like? How did she spend her time? She's a housewife and totally baseline person. Very, you know, active, but not. Again, know, continuing this theme of information, was she out there trying to get information? No, just typical, you know, 70 year old patient. She wanted to have treatment. She definitely wanted to have some kind of intervention to prevent the cancer from coming back because of her prior experience with the cancer. She remembered being very nauseated with the cisplatin and having a lot of vomiting. And she, from the beginning, stated that she did not want intravenous chemotherapy. She knew the difference between oral chemotherapies and intravenous chemotherapy, and she was very afraid of getting intravenous chemotherapy. Her husband was also in favor of something that will give her benefit, but not exposing her to too much toxicity. That's interesting, though. Was it the intravenous nature of it or the nausea vomiting? Well, she related in her mind the coming to the office for many, many, many hours and being very sick and throwing up and nauseated with the cisplatin. So, Jordan, how would you think this through? Well, this is a person who's not going to be a good oxaloplatin candidate. We have not found another agent that really adds significantly to 5-FU in the adjuvant setting. There are two main options for her. Obviously, the intravenous 5-FU may be too stigmatized for her, although the LVFU2 type of regimen or a simplified LVFU2 regimen would be the least toxic in reality we all know. She may be a better candidate for capecitabine, and with the exact randomized trial showing capecitabine to be at least as good as, if not slightly better than 5-FU in the adjuvant setting for stage 3 patients, I think she's perfectly capable of receiving capecitabine as her adjuvant therapy. And either now or if she were 10 years younger and had 10 positive nodes, would you maybe even consider arena TKN? I'm kind of a hard guy. It's just there's not really good data for arena TKN that it's helpful. And, you know, with the highest risk patients especially, the highest risk patients were tested on the ACCORD trial. And the ACCORD trial, if anything, they had to do some statistical gimmicking to bring the arena-tecan arm up to the level of the 5-FU. So to me, it's just not clear why 
Irina Tikin hasn't had the benefit that the oxaliplatin has had in the adjuvant setting, but I'm not smarter than the data, and the data is what the data is, so I go with what we've got. And you know, Axel, that issue of why really bothers a lot of people. We have this model that things work in metastatic disease are supposed to work in adjuvant. Any thoughts about why this happened? <laughs> Am I smarter than the data? <laughs> no, it's actually, it was very puzzling information that we got from Marine Tekin because we all accepted Fall Fury, Fall Fox being equivalent. We knew that IFL was superior in terms of response rate, overall survival, progression-free survival to 5 filocovorin And in head-to-head comparison, Reintegrin didn't really add anything significant to 5-filocovorin. The PETAC data, the final PETAC data, which really compared Fulfiri to 5-filocovorin, LV5-FU2, have not been presented yet. So, but from all we know, Reintegrin is not a good drug in the adjuvant setting. Why that is? You know, if you talk about how Reintegrin works, you could think that in the micrometastatic setting, topisomerase doesn't play a role. So in a way, Reintegrin is targeted therapy. We know how it works. But this enzyme might not play a role in the dormant cells that are not proliferating in perhaps an adjuvant setting. I'm just completely speculating here. This is not at all validated, but the basic message is we cannot one-to-one translate information we gain from the palliative setting into the adjuvant setting. And that's coming back to the biologics. That's why we're still hesitant to recommend biologics outside of a clinical trial (coughs) to be used in the adjuvant setting because we really don't know what we're doing. And, you know, I remember, I think I started interviewing you when you were still in Germany about this issue of capecitabine. And at that point, when we talked about capecitabine, you were saying, oh, the the docs in the U.S. don't know how to do patient ed about capecitabine. Then you came over here, and you saw the toxicity that people were talking about. What's your take on dose of capecitabine? And and it's interesting. When I left Germany about four years ago, and I went back to my treatment logs, and I've kind of really looked at what did I do to colon rectal cancer patient. At that time, when I left, I had 999 prescriptions for Xelox, and 115 for Falfox-like regimen. So you can see that I'd already switched to Kipsidevin, and I used it in the European dose, and I didn't see a problem. I came to America. My patients now experience the toxicities I didn't understand at that time. Apparently, and this is a real effect, and you can talk to Dan Haller about that, who had some paper about this, um, American patients do not tolerate capsaicin at the same dose as European or in particular Asian patients. And we can speculate a lot why that is. I mean, there are definitely no pharmacogenomic differences between a German population in, let's say, Germany or in Wisconsin and in Minnesota because they're all Germans or Scandinavians. So, I mean, there's no pharmacogenomic difference. So it has to be kind of lifestyle, dietary supplements, whatever, my preferred hypothesis is still the folate intake, multivitamin intake. I personally actually recommend my patients, I don't know whether it's right or wrong, to stop their multivitamins when they take capsidabine. Patients sometimes think I'm crazy because how can you tell me to stop multivitamins? You know, Because it's like, what are you trying to harm me? And so I try to educate them there might be some dietary problem with the use of capsidabine. In this patient, my question to Jordan would be, so, and to you actually, what dose did you use? I used the 1250 twice a day. And did it work? Which, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, she had toxicity from it, Helen Foot syndrome. So when you um, went down, so went to, down 1, to 1,000 twice a day and she did fine except... Towards the end of the treatment, she had a DVT, which was symptomatic, and I had to put her on Coumadin. Mm-hmm. And because of the interactions, her, her INR was all of the yeah. zone super high and super low, so I had to put her on low molecular weight heparin while she finished the Zeloda. 
So that was only. Where is she right now? Or she finished. How long She's ago? Nine, ten months ago. And by the time she was done, when she was getting towards the end, how were her hand, foot, and those kinds of... No, no, no. It, it, all it totally improved, went away when absolutely, were, with the dose reduction. What's her life like now? The baseline. She's doing very well at this point. You know, it's funny. Uh, Bob Carlson, who works with us on the breast programs, told me something interesting, which is he puts patients like this at the end of the day. You know, the people who've had adjuvant therapy and oh, free absolutely. disease. So, and he puts all his hard patients in the morning. And I, I don't know. I've never heard that before. It makes a lot of sense. Like emotionally, he wants to, not just for him, but for the staff. Does anybody do that? I thought it was kind of an interesting idea. Well, anyhow, it's something to think about. I do the opposite because when you put the easy patients at the end of the day, usually running way behind because the tough patients take up a lot more than the 15 minutes your office manager lets you have. And so, you know, it's... I don't know. I, I use new patients at the end. I of think the it day. must be rewarding, though, to see people who are free of disease. They recover from their chemotherapy, and you know, a lot of these people tell us that you know their perspective on life has changed, and they really see things differently. Do you see that? In, Absolutely, in these, especially you? in younger patients. Younger patients that go through chemotherapy in the adjuvant setting, especially they change. I was talking to a patient of mine, 42 years old, who is in this paper too with rectal cancer. He completed chemotherapy and radiation just recently. And he was talking about that, how, you know, he sees things totally different now. Does that affect you and the way you see your own life? Do you sort of learn Uh, from them? I try to. Because a lot of people tell me that. Paul, I see you shaking your head. Oh, I agree. I think that all of these patients, this is a life-altering experience. And so they learn to deal with what's important in life, and they don't let the trivia bother them so much. Yeah. And actually, I like the fact that you bring that up, the mental health of the treating oncologist. I don't think we talk enough about that. Because when I look at my list for Monday, you know, and I know, okay, that's going to be a great day. I have all these patients that come for, they're two years out, and we'll talk about it, we'll joke, whatever. And sometimes, you know, like, okay, okay, this is going to be an end-of-life discussion. The next one's going to be, and then I have complicated. It affects yes, us, yeah. too, a lot. And we don't have real good mechanisms to cope with that because you have to adjust from every 15, 20 minutes from being jokingly happy and whatever to next time you go to see a different patient, you talk about end-of-life issues. I mean, that's a toll we take on our mental health, which I think we not appreciate, right? We did this piece called A Day in the Life where we showed a clinic list of a doc in practice, a medical oncology practice, and went through each case. And there were several really difficult situations. A patient who had to be told it was time for hospice, another patient who had a biopsy that showed metastatic disease. And so we interviewed the doc about, you know, this was Alan Friedman, about how he deals with it. And I was very interested. I said, well, what did you do that day at the end of the day? And he said, I do the same thing I do every day. I went to the gym. When I first got there, I felt terrible, and you know, I felt a little bit better after I started working out. What do you all do, Dr. Rees? What do you do to try to deal with this? I end up crying. Sometimes I go play. Sometimes I pray. It just varies on the day. Yeah, this doc also told me that religion was an important thing to him. Dr. Moriarty, how about you? The joke in our house is my kids don't get much sympathy for their sore throat. <laughs> you know, And you spend all this time and energy listening and taking people's stories and lives into your heart during the day. I find it terribly important to remind myself that the most important people in my life are my kids and my family. And when I go home, I've got to do that, too. And I think it's hard for us to do that. How old are your kids? 
Uh, let's see, our youngest is 17 and our oldest is 22. Do you think they understand what you're doing during the day? Absolutely. We have death and dying talks. Really? I mean, when they were in high school and grammar school, one of my children says, Dad, don't worry, I'll pull the plug on you. What if you not like bicycling? And particularly in the summer with long days, after a long day, I'll come home, my wife will look at me, she says, I don't even want to talk to you until you've done 20 miles. <laughs> you won't be, you're not human. Interesting. Any other comments? Atif? Yesterday, after finishing the day, I saw a 31-year-old woman, malignant melanoma. Two years ago, no adjuvant therapy. She comes with headache, multiple brain meds, and they biopsied the lung. It's melanoma, and she's 24-week pregnant, her first pregnancy. I deal with it with a combination of the above. I mean, with the children, it's really very important. I try to call my kids at the end of the day. But it's so hard. I recently started treating 49-year-old man whom incidentally I found out that his son and my son are classmates and my son never really asked me about him he knew for like two months that I'm actually treating the dead and his friends will ask him Kamal what does your dad say about you know I don't want to say too much information or else I have to make the person sign again (laughs) and he knew better not to ask me because I'm never going to ask him until actually his girlfriend got involved and they told him. The son of the patient told my son. They definitely know what we go through and it affects them. No question about it. Honestly, that's a good program you might want to initiate too. But these cases, you know, helping us, because we're focusing, we're all geared toward helping patients. We all do that every day. We try to educate ourselves to help patients. At some point, we need to help ourselves. Well, you know, Kurt was saying at the break, it's, helpful to hear about other docs struggling, whether it's with how to interpret the data or how to deal with the emotional aspect, just to know that you're not by yourself in trying to deal with that. Any other thoughts on that, Kurt? No, it's just, I think we always joke about liver rounds on Friday afternoon, but I think it is very therapeutic. And, you know, oftentimes I try and get together with friends. There's a bar across the uh, street, and when we're not on call on Friday afternoon, we go and we have a drink. And we just bitch and moan, and I come away feeling much better. Yeah, in this issue of emotional thing, I see different people deal with this differently. I had one patient with myelodysplasia who is a golf professional in teaching in the thing. He handled it so differently. He knows, you know, he went through the bean and in a protocol, and he didn't do well. He knew he was going to die. He called everybody. He wanted to have a party. My office staff and everybody go to his house, have a drink, and you know he was going to die. And then when he died, he wanted to have everybody go out and play golf on his name in his golf course. He arranged all these things, and he wanted to die and remember his life in a very happy way. So I'm seeing all these patients for 25 years. My emotional feeling is I'm kind of a numb, to tell you the truth. I'm just kind of numb. It's like it's part of my day. I need to do this. I'm doing this. I don't have... What will happen if I get a cancer? I don't have a feeling. So, but while I'm studying this patient, I'm planning if I get a cancer, how should I handle? And I haven't decided that yet. This is the emotion that I go through.